Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. Shrink your Christmas bill at Dunn Stores. Delicious free-range 4-kilo Irish turkeys are just $39.99. And incredible unsmoked center-cut Irish ham is now just $13.59 for 2.75 kilos. That's 20% off. King prawn cocktail and oak and peat cold smoked salmon are just €6. Plus, with our 10 or 50 grocery voucher, you save even more. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher abuse to next grocery shop of €50 or more. Before I begin, I want to let you know that today, October 4th through the 9th, Stitcher is having True Crime Week to kick off the spookiest month of the year. If you like true crime, and I know you do because you're here, head over to Stitcher and check out all of the other true crime podcasts available. Christian Longo decided that he no longer wanted to be the loving father and husband that so many people believed he was. He wanted to go back to a time when he was young and single. He wanted to travel the world and be free of his familial responsibilities. In order to do that, he needed to get rid of his wife and kids. This is Monsters. Christian Michael Stewart was born on January 23, 1974 in Iowa. His mother, Joy, was only a teenager when he was born, and his father, Stephen Stewart, was an abusive alcoholic. Chris had one younger brother named Dustin, and their father abused both of them and Joy. Joy left Stephen and remarried when Chris was about four years old. His stepfather, Joe Longo, was a co-worker of Joy's at the Target store in Des Moines. Both Joy and the boys took Joe's last name, and after the wedding, Joe legally adopted Chris and Dustin. Eventually, Joe moved up at the retail chain and became a district manager. This meant that Joy could quit her job and stay at home. Neither Joe or Joy were born into the Jehovah's Witness religion. Chris would explain during his trial that his family was Roman Catholic, though they weren't practicing. 
It wasn't until a Jehovah's Witness came to the door while Joy was at home that she became interested in being active in a religion. Joy was soon attending several meetings at the organization as they referred to themselves. She was also participating in field service activity, which is what they called going door-to-door, proselytizing. Joy would take Chris and Dustin with her when she went door-to-door and Chris took the material very well. At the organization, they taught their followers how to talk to people and how to answer the questions that were bound to arise. This is something that seemed to prepare Chris for his future life as a con artist. One of the most negative aspects of the Jehovah's Witness religion is their insistence that their members don't mingle with non-members. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, you're only supposed to hang out with other Jehovah's Witnesses. If your own child decides to stop being a Jehovah's Witness, then you're supposed to cut off all contact with them. Like Scientologists won't hang out with people who are quote-unquote repressives, Jehovah's Witnesses won't hang out with people who are quote-unquote worldly, which is insane that they use that as a term for someone you shouldn't associate with, people who have been out in the world and have experienced life. In order to believe in their religion, you need to stay away from those types of people. Interesting. At the beginning of the 1990s, Joe was transferred to be the regional manager of the retail chain in Michigan. They moved to the town of Ypsilanti, about 20 minutes east of Ann Arbor. From this point on in his life, Chris was homeschooled instead of going to public school. Throughout his later teen years, he held a few part-time jobs and did his schoolwork at home and continued his work for the organization. Mary Jane Baker was born on April 25, 1967, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She was the middle of five children. Brother Mark and Sister Jenny were born before her, and sisters Sally and Penny were born after. Mary Jane's parents, Jim and Susan, were not originally Jehovah's Witnesses either. Around 1973, Jim and Susan divorced, and Susan became a Jehovah's Witness. Jim had rejected the religion, but it's unclear if that had anything to do with their separation. As Mary Jane grew older and got out of high school, she started working as a secretary at a dental school at the University of Michigan. She wanted to get married, but Jehovah's Witnesses were not supposed to marry outside of their religion. When the Longos moved to the area, they brought her her best prospect in Chris. When Chris found out that Mary Jane was interested in dating him, he immediately reciprocated. Except his parents didn't think he was ready to date. They gave me an ultimatum at that point. They said uh, I was still fairly adamant that I wanted to date Mary Jane, and they uh, essentially said you can either live under our roof or you can date Mary Jane. And... uh, I chose to move out that next week, 18 plus one week and a half or so. Even though Chris was now 18 years old, they believed that he was still too immature to date. They told him that he could either live under their roof or date Mary Jane. So Chris, being a young man in love, packed his bags and moved out. This young man had been sheltered from the real world, never faced any real problems on his own, had only ever been educated within a small bubble of the organization, and now he was out on his own. Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in team sports, after-school activities, or higher education. Anything that could give a young adult some type of skills to use when they live on their own were not approved by the organization. His parents, who believed he was too immature to date, had created a situation where he was dating and living on his own. Good job. Chris stayed with a friend for a few weeks until he was able to get an apartment with a couple of roommates. Five months later, during a group trip to the Jehovah's Witness headquarters in Brooklyn, New York, Chris managed to get Mary Jane alone at the hotel restaurant where he gave her a diamond ring and asked her to marry him. She said yes. Chris's life of crime began just three months after the engagement. 
He worked at a camera shop in the local mall, and he wasn't making enough to pay his portion of the rent, plus the payment for the engagement ring that he had purchased on credit. One day, a man had come into the camera shop and put a $108 down payment on a camcorder, and Chris decided to pocket the money. He took that money to the jewelry store in the same mall and made a payment on Mary Jane's ring. I'm always curious about the thought process when something like this happens. I understand in the past, sales registers may not have logged every penny that was collected, but Christian Longo grew up about the same time I did. I remember having retail jobs in the early 90s, and those registers collected and totaled all of the transactions throughout the day. If $108 was rung up but not put in the till, the manager would know. And Chris's manager did know. He questioned all of the employees the day after the money went missing, but nobody knew anything. The following day, Chris was scheduled to open the store. He went in, placed his keys, a check for $108, and a resignation letter onto the counter. Then he locked up and left. That didn't get him completely off the hook, though. His boss pressed charges, and Chris was convicted of misdemeanor embezzlement. He received 80 hours of community service. When he explained what he had done to Mary Jane, she forgave him and told him she still wanted to marry him. He promised that he would never do anything like that or lie to her ever again. That would be one of the biggest lies that Chris would ever tell, and he went on to tell a lot of lies. Chris told the organization about what happened and he was put on restrictions. This is another idea that's common in multiple religions. If you do something that's against the religion's teachings, you get restricted from certain privileges available to members who are in good standing. A Mormon may be restricted from entering the temple. In this case, it meant that Chris would not be allowed to marry in their kingdom hall, something that was a very big deal to Mary Jane. Chris worried that his indiscretion may have ruined his relationship, but ultimately, Mary Jane agreed that their relationship was more important than where they got married. Chris and Mary Jane got married on March 13, 1993. Chris's parents, though they originally were not supportive of the union, paid for the pair to honeymoon in Jamaica. Chris began working for Publishers Circulation Fulfillment, which was a company that handled the delivery of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. The pay was decent, and he worked the early morning hours, which meant he had the rest of the day to spend with Mary Jane. After their wedding, the couple rented an apartment together, and the property owners were called Chris telling them that he worked for the New York Times. It wasn't an outright lie, but it was twisting the truth. He was essentially a paperboy, but I work for the New York Times sounds so much more prestigious. That kind of thing mattered to Chris. Throughout the 1990s, Chris continued to get himself into minor financial trouble. He had been sued for failing to pay his landlord from his previous apartment. He got a retail charge card in his and Mary Jane's name and failed to pay the over $1,400 balance. Even though both Chris and Mary Jane were working, they still seemed to spend above their means. Family members questioned how they were able to afford everything. Chris always wanted the best of everything. He viewed himself as a photographer, so he spent money on camera equipment. He had a new computer, which was not cheap in the mid-90s. They took several vacations to Jamaica and Mexico. Their first child, a son named Zachary, was born on February 28, 1997. Chris was promoted at the distribution company and used the extra money to buy a new car and a pool table. That pool table went into the new house they purchased from Mary Jane's mother and stepfather. That house was purchased because the Longos had another baby on the way. Sadie was born on April 30, 1998. 
The next day, Chris was sent to San Francisco because there was a newspaper distribution strike happening and his employers needed all of their managers there to help get papers out. Chris told the company that his wife had just had a baby, but the company insisted that he go to San Francisco. An unhappy Chris left his wife to care for their newborn and one-year-old on her own and traveled the nearly 2,400 miles or 3,800 kilometers to ensure the people of the Bay Area would get their newspapers. After being in San Francisco, away from his family for a week, the distribution company decided to pull some of the managers and send them back home. When Chris found out that he was going to be one of the managers that stayed in the Bay Area, he up and quit. He had had enough of the company keeping him away from his family, and he vowed that he would not miss Sadie's first steps and first word like he did with Zach. At least, that was Chris's explanation. Chris began working as a salesman for a fireplace and spa company. He would sell fireplaces to the local construction companies. It didn't pay as well as his previous job, but he was able to spend more time with his family. Chris eventually learned that his pay, which was straight commission, would not be as high as he was promised when he took the job. That didn't stop the family from overspending, though. In 1998, the Longos had taken out a loan with a local credit union to buy a 1997 Sea-Doo Bombardier jet ski, and Chris financed a brand new Dodge Durango. On top of that, Mary Jane was pregnant with their third child. Madison was born on October 19, 1999. She was seven weeks premature and had respiratory issues that required her to stay in the hospital for about a month. This put a financial strain on the family because even though they had health insurance, it didn't cover everything. You know, America. It also didn't help that they had not changed their spending habits when Chris began working his new job with a lower income. While Madison was still in the hospital, Mary Jane's car was repossessed. She had been allocating their available funds to ensure that Chris's car payment got made since his job required the use of a vehicle. Of course, out of anything, Chris was most upset that their neighbors might have seen their car get repossessed. Appearances were always the most important thing to Chris. Chris knew that his sales job was not going to get them out of debt. He needed to find something he could do to bring in enough money, and he saw an opportunity in the construction industry. The same contractors that Chris was selling fireplaces to were dying to find a company that would come in and clean houses when the construction was done. Vacuum, clean the windows, and make the houses look presentable for home buyers. In January of 2000, Chris started his own business, Final Touch Construction Cleaning. The company began landing contracts immediately. Contractors that Chris had already known from his sales job were giving him more work than he could do. He hired an employee, and then he hired several employees. The company was thriving, and they were billing out thousands of dollars in work, but it wasn't coming in. In the construction industry, contractors are not quick to pay their subcontractors. They will, it's just a long process and takes some time. Chris needed cash now to pay his employees. Not only that, but his Dodge Durango broke down and needed thousands of dollars in repairs. Never the one to show stress, Chris promised Mary Jane that he would get her any car she wanted. She told him she dreamed of having a minivan for all of the kids, one with a TV screen in it so the kids could watch videos. Since he started the business, he bragged about how much money they were making, so as far as Mary Jane knew, they were rolling in it. The truth was, they were just as broke as they were before, but Chris already knew what he needed to do. One of the things that Chris had always afforded himself was the nicest computer equipment, so even in 2000, he had a scanner and printer capable of creating a fake driver's license, at least one that could pass for real at a car dealership. Chris scanned his own driver's license, edited the information, and printed out the new license. 
He then laminated the license and cut it out to be the correct size. The only thing it was missing was the little holographic state seal, but that was easily overlooked. It's important to note that, after using the laminator, Chris returned it to the office supply store. He even stole the use of the laminator. We'll be right back. Whether you're struggling with grief, relationships, or stress, or having trouble sleeping or meeting goals, online therapy might be right for you. If you've listened to my show, you know that I suffered from trauma as a child, and it wasn't until I spoke to a therapist that I was finally able to get some relief with my mental health. BetterHelp is secure online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with a licensed professional therapist. They will assess your needs and match you with your own accredited therapist who you can start communicating with in under 48 hours. The service is available to clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send messages to your therapist and you'll get a timely, thoughtful response, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. Visit BetterHelp.com slash ThisIsMonsters and join over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. This is Monsters is sponsored by BetterHelp, and our listeners get 10% off their first month of therapy at BetterHelp.com slash ThisIsMonsters. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash ThisIsMonsters. On February 16th, 2000, Chris drove into Ohio and returned the rental car he had been driving to a location near a group of car dealerships. He then walked into a dealership and asked to test drive a new Pontiac Montana minivan, fully loaded. The saleswoman asked to take a photocopy of his driver's license, so he handed over his Michigan driver's license that said Jason Fortner, and she walked away. When she returned, she handed him back his license and the keys to the van. Chris hopped in the van and drove off the lot. He never returned. When he got home, Mary Jane was thrilled with her new vehicle. Chris explained that the dealership had a special deal where payments didn't start for 90 days. That was more than enough time for Final Touch to be raking in the money. Chris had taken the license plate off of his Durango while it was still out of commission and placed it on the Montana. He then ordered vanity plates for his Durango that said Kid Van, and when they arrived, he placed them on the Montana and put the Durango's plates back on the truck. In Michigan, a vanity plate didn't list the type of vehicle it was on, just who the registered owner was. If someone ran the plates on the minivan, it would just come up as registered to Chris Longo. The only evidence left behind was a photocopy of the fake driver's license. Jason Fortner wasn't real, and the address didn't exist. The police in Ohio didn't have much to go on, and unless someone physically found the van and could match the VIN, they were out of luck. It seemed that Chris's problem was that he wanted too much too fast. When Joe and Joy moved to Indianapolis, Chris convinced Joe to invest in opening an Indianapolis branch of Final Touch. The business was in demand, and his contracts were finally rolling into regular pay cycles, but Chris impatiently wanted more and more, and he kept himself underwater. Christian Longo would eventually go on to talk extensively with a journalist named Michael Finkel, and in his correspondence, he makes himself out to be justified in all of his actions. He paints himself as a guy who was backed into a corner and just made some bad decisions in an effort to keep everyone happy, but that doesn't seem to be true. 
Two months after starting Final Touch, Chris opened a separate business checking account that nobody else knew about. He used that account to purchase a forklift and a trailer, but the check bounced. Chris eventually sold that same equipment for $5,000. He wrote himself a check for $5,900 and cashed it at a local credit union. That check also bounced. When the people that Chris bought the forklift and trailer from reported the equipment stolen, Chris claimed that it had been totaled in a car accident. This was a complete fabrication, and it's hard to understand how Chris would do something like that as a means of just trying to get by during hard times. Chris continued to use his history of blaming everyone else for his problems. One of his biggest accounts was held by Wexford Builders, and they owed him quite a few thousand dollars. He began believing that, if they had paid their invoices on time, he wouldn't be in this mess. Chris used his computer forgery skills to recreate the checks that he had received previously from Wexford Builders, and printed six checks for different amounts, all matching unpaid invoices he had sent the company, according to Chris. The next day, he deposited three checks into his bank account and experienced no issues, so he deposited a few more the day after. Chris had enough money in his account to cover his payroll so he wouldn't look like a failure to everyone. His employees, his parents, his family. That was Chris's biggest priority. He had no concern of getting caught. He once wrote, quote, All I could think of right now was that today's problem was solved, end quote. That's called short-sightedness, when you only think about what's happening today, but not about how it will affect the future. It's common in the business world when companies are trying to save money. They refuse to spend the extra money right now to upgrade software or replace a company vehicle, but they end up spending 10 times more in the long run when the employees have to wait on slow software or the vehicle breaks down. Chris's employees were happily paid today, but they will be less happy when they're out of a job because its company owner is in prison. When payroll was due two weeks later, Chris did the same thing. He justified his actions by claiming he was only taking amounts of money that Wexford Builders owed him. They wouldn't have any reason to press charges because technically they weren't out any money. Yeah, that's not the way theft works, Chris. His lack of foresight made it easy for police to track Chris down and question him about his forgeries. On July 14, 2000, Detective Sergeant Fred Farkas brought Chris into the police station and questioned him about the forgeries. Chris tried to chalk it up to a business mistake, but the authorities explained that check forgery was a serious offense and each forged check could have up to a 14-year prison sentence. Chris openly admitted that he had cashed the checks at the bank and that he knew that they weren't valid checks. He claimed that he had only cashed the checks in the amounts that Wexford Builders owed him, but the investigators had already talked to the home builder, and they said that they didn't owe Chris nearly as much as he had stolen from them. At the time of Chris's last attempted forgery, which was unsuccessful, that would have added up to about $35,000. Authorities were mostly interested in obtaining the equipment he used to create the checks. This was the first time in this encounter that Chris refused to cooperate. It wasn't until Detective Farkas told him that he was going to get a search warrant for his home, his vehicles, and his bank account that he changed his mind. Chris didn't want the police looking into his life any harder. They could discover that the minivan was stolen. They could discover that he had written bad checks to other banks, some of his employees, or for the purchase of the forklift and trailer. They could discover that most of his toys, like his jet skis and his boat, were all actually stolen. Not directly by Chris, but he got a real good deal on them. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Chris told them that the laptop he had used to create the checks was in the Durango. Mary Jane drove the truck down to the police station and paid a $100 bond for Chris to be released. 
Though Chris avoided being taken to jail that night, his punishment wasn't over. Detective Farkas was continuing to gather evidence to officially charge Chris, and at the same time, the organization was coming to a decision about Chris's worthiness to remain a member. Just months earlier, Chris had been caught having an affair with another witness member, who he had hired to be his assistant. Though both Chris and the other woman claimed that they never had a physical relationship, their emotional affair was still grounds for restrictions within the community. Chris would have been able to regain his standing in the organization through repentance, but this new information about the forgeries proved that Chris was not willing to repent for his actions, and the Jehovah's Witnesses disfellowshipped Chris. This can also be referred to as a shunning, because, well, that's exactly what it is. Active members in the organization were to sever all ties with someone who was shunned, but Mary Jane was married to Chris. How was she supposed to do that? She continued to attend regular meetings, but the situation put a major strain on her life. Chris's own mother, stepfather, and brother all shunned him. Joe removed himself from the business and asked for his investment to be returned. Chris eventually pleaded guilty to two counts of forgery and two counts of uttering and publishing. He was sentenced to three years of probation, fines covering court costs, and $29,868 in restitution. Chris had gotten a slap on the wrist for this offense, but the heat was not off. Detective Farkas had found out about Chris's other bad checks and about the larceny case that was pending in the next county over regarding the forklift and trailer. The prosecutor issued a new arrest warrant for the scam involving the forklift and trailer. Employees that had received bad checks from Chris were starting to file lawsuits. Chris's probation officer seemed to not care too much about what Chris did, but the walls were still closing in. By the spring of 2001, Chris had used up the $100,000 line of credit he had gotten when he opened his business, the same line of credit that his mother and stepfather had signed for. On top of the $30,000 in restitution Chris was ordered to pay by the court, he still owed employees and other banks $74,000. To ease the pressure, Chris did what Chris did best and forged Joe's signature to secure a credit card, which he used for a few months. But instead of using the money to get himself into a better position financially, he bought scuba gear and paid for diving lessons. He also got laser eye surgery for Mary Jane. One of his last few employees fell off of a roof and broke both of his ankles, but Chris hadn't been paying his workers' compensation insurance. The employee sued. When the credit card reached its limit, Chris tried to get another one, but by then, his parents had found out about the first one they began working with the credit card company to bring charges against their son. In order to solve all of these problems, Chris and Mary Jane quietly sold their house, loaded everything they needed into the Montana minivan and a rented trailer, and disappeared. Chris had found an old warehouse for rent for about $1,700 a month in Toledo, Ohio, and believed that the family could live there while he started a new business and got the money together to get a house. Chris told Mary Jane not to tell anyone where they were going, not even family members. There were always questions as to whether or not Mary Jane was involved in Chris's scams. It seems unlikely she wouldn't be involved, as it was impossible for her to not know what was going on. The thing that defined Mary Jane the most was her faith in the Jehovah's Witness religion. It teaches young women that their purpose is to support and obey their husbands. All Jehovah's Witness couples are encouraged to read a book created by the organization called The Secret of Family Happiness. In it, there's a section called Wifely Subjection, which describes what qualities a wife should display in her relationship with her husband. It explains that God created Eve as a helper to Adam, 
a complement, not a competitor. It states, quote, The husband was to exercise loving headship, and the wife was to manifest love, respect, and willing submission, end quote. The book goes on to say, quote, However, a good wife is more than just submissive. She tries to be a real helper, being supportive of her husband in the decisions that he makes. Of course, that is easier for her when she agrees with his decisions. But even when she does not, her active support can help his decision to have a more successful outcome. End quote. It's impossible to say what was going on in Mary Jane's head because we can't ask her, but it's entirely possible that she believed that she needed to support her husband, no matter what, and it seems that Chris knew that. Some of his employees would later say that they overheard him talking about being able to do whatever he wanted and that Mary Jane would never leave him. Chris had managed to talk the landlord of the warehouse into only taking one month's rent as a deposit. She was so anxious to rent out the building that she didn't even bother with a credit check. Once there, Chris began using a new bank account to cash more forged checks. He began using the names of other builders he had worked for to cash checks into his account, and then he took a portion of the deposit back in cash. Chris still used his own name and made no effort to not get caught. He just brazenly scammed cash wherever he could. Detective Farkas was immediately informed that Chris had fled and that he was forging more checks. Police had heard rumors that the Longos had gone to Toledo, but they didn't know exactly where. Chris had started his new business at the warehouse, which happened to be selling stolen goods. He put an ad in the local paper advertising a skid loader for sale. When a man came out to look at it, he became suspicious when Chris offered to sell him a $30,000 piece of equipment for $5,000. He notified the police and Sergeant Paul Hickey took a few other officers out to the warehouse to check it out. Chris used his charm to explain that he had purchased the skid loader a year prior for his business but never ended up needing it. He said that he didn't have the title and registration with him as they were in the process of moving, but he would dig it up and fax it to him later that day. Sergeant Hickey radioed in the serial number of the equipment, and the dispatch responded that it had not been reported stolen. After talking to both Chris and Mary Jane and not feeling like either of them were acting strangely, Sergeant Hickey left and went back to the station. Out of curiosity, he had the serial number of the skid loader traced to a dealer, and the dealer put him in contact with who their records said they sold it to. When he called that company, which was located in Ypsilanti, they told him that the skid loader had gone missing about two months prior, but they had never reported it stolen. Sergeant Hickey gathered the troops and raced back out to the warehouse, but the Longos were gone. In the warehouse, they found a large trailer, a boat, and a boat trailer. They were all reported stolen. The Longos drove across the country, sleeping in a tent most of the time and using the last bits of the money that Chris had gotten from forged checks and selling stolen property. It's unclear exactly where they went, but on September 12, 2001, they ended up at the Pacific Coast in a small town in Oregon called Yahats. Yahats is about dead center on the Oregon coast, not too far south of Newport, a pretty popular summer beach spot. Chris and his family went to the office of Ocean Odyssey Vacation Rentals and negotiated a weekly rental of a three-bedroom home for a $200 deposit and $190 a week. When the agent asked for a credit card, Chris admitted that his cards were all maxed out and said he was hoping that he could just pay in cash. Seeing that the family was obviously worn out from their travels, the agent agreed and the Longos headed off to their new home just a few miles up the coast in Waldport. It didn't last long as Chris couldn't afford the weekly payment and they were kicked out of the home after less than a month. They managed to find shelter at a small motel in Newport for the time being while Chris tried to bring in some money. We'll be right back. 
Some people believe that Chris made a deal with Mary Jane to start earning an honest living, and that's why Mary Jane continued to put up with the lifestyle that Chris had condemned them to. There's no way to know for sure, but Chris did attempt to do honest work after they arrived in Oregon. Chris knew that he couldn't try to get a job that would do a background check because that would reveal his criminal record and pending warrants. He didn't have any real skills besides being a convincing personality. He went down the street to a Starbucks coffee shop that was located inside a Fred Meyer retailer and applied for a job. He had no experience, but he charmed his way into the position. It started out as part-time, but he was eventually promoted, which switched him to full-time hours. He was spinning a tale around town that he worked for Quest Communications and was waiting for their new fiber-optic work to begin. He managed to convince the manager of the Landing Condominiums to rent him a one-bedroom unit for $1,200 a month, something that Chris knew he could not afford. But remember, Chris was not someone to worry about tomorrow's problems. He found them an upgrade from their motel room for now, and that's all that mattered. It wasn't long, though, before Chris came to the conclusion that it was his own family that was costing him the most. If he didn't have to pay for them, he could be living it up. Sometime between getting off work on November 16th and the morning of November 17th, Chris Longo strangled 34-year-old Mary Jane and 2-year-old Madison and stuffed their bodies into suitcases. He carried the suitcases from the condo across the street to the Embarcadero Marina and dropped them into the water. Then he went back home and loaded 4-year-old Zachary and 3-year-old Sadie into the stolen red Montana minivan and drove about 16 miles south to the bridge that crossed over the Lint Slough in Waldport. At just after 4 in the morning on December 17th, Chris pulled the van over on the bridge, tied a pillowcase full of rocks around Zachary's ankle, and threw his body into the water. He repeated the same thing with Sadie. The medical examiner confirmed that both children were alive when they went into the water. The last thing they saw as they looked up at that bridge that was quickly becoming smaller was their father. The person that was supposed to be there to love and protect them had just sent them to their watery graves. As the weighted pillowcases dragged them down to the bottom of the icy slough, they didn't have the time or dexterity to untie themselves, and they drowned. Then, Chris drove himself back to the condo. Not seeming to have any problem with the fact that he had just murdered his entire family, Chris stuck around Newport for a couple more days. On December 18th, he headed to Wilsonville, which was just south of Portland, Oregon, and parked the Montana in the lot of a Dodge dealership. He removed the license plates and strolled into the dealership. He hopped into a new green Dodge Durango, found that the keys were in the ignition since it was inside the showroom, and drove away with it. A sensor automatically opened a garage-style door that exited the showroom, and everyone on the sales floor assumed someone was taking it for a test drive. It wasn't until the next day that the employees noticed that the Durango was still gone. They then found the Montana in their parking lot without plates and called the police. Chris would actually work two more shifts at the Starbucks on the morning of the 19th and 20th before fleeing the area. It's believed that Chris thought that the bodies wouldn't be discovered and planned to continue his single life in the area. He had told a friend that Mary Jane had left him, and he had told his landlord that he had taken his wife and kids to the airport, so it seemed that he was creating a reason why he was now a bachelor in the town. On December 19, 2001, the body of a young boy was found floating in the water of the Lint Slough near a local mobile home park. Police couldn't match the identity of the boy to any missing persons report, so they made a computerized drawing of the boy's face to put on the news. 
They also identified the nearby bridge as a possible location for someone to throw a body into the water and called in divers to search the waters under the bridge. The picture on the news got an immediate response from a woman who had become friends with the Longos and had recently babysat the kids when Chris and Mary Jane went to the movies. She identified the boy as Zachary and told authorities that they had only been in the area for a few months. The police went to the landing condos to talk to the manager. He told them that he last saw Chris on the 17th and he said he was taking his wife and kids to the airport. He said they were flying to Michigan. When they checked out the unit, it was discovered that the Longos had moved out. At this same time, divers located a pillowcase weighted down with rocks in the water underneath the bridge. It looked like Zachary had come untied at some point and floated to the surface. Not far away, they found the body of Sadie also tied to a pillowcase full of rocks. Their unidentified boy had turned into a double murder, but where was the rest of the family? Police were notified that two housekeepers at a nearby motel had found a bunch of suspicious items in the dumpster behind the building. There were baby books with pictures, Mary Jane's driver's license, children's clothes, and film that hadn't been developed. This was the same motel that the Longos had stayed in prior to moving into the condo at the landing. It was quite a few days before authorities found the other two bodies in the case. They continued to believe that Chris and Mary Jane may have killed their two oldest children and fled with Madison. They found the Montana and searched it, but it didn't help them answer any of their many questions. A witness came forward and said he saw a red minivan stopped on the bridge that went over the Lint Slough on December 17th at about 4.30 in the morning. He slowed down and asked if the man, who matched the description of Chris, needed help, but the man said everything was okay. On December 27th, divers found the two suitcases that contained the bodies of Mary Jane and Madison under the Embarcadero Marina. An autopsy revealed that they had both been strangled prior to being put in the water. In some reports, it states that a pipe in the water was broken at the marina and the suitcases were discovered due to that. In other places, it says that Mary Jane's family pressured the police to send divers into the water near the condo because they were sure Mary Jane was dead. I don't know which is correct, or if it was a combination of the two, but eventually the police did find the remaining family members, and it was clear that Chris had murdered his family and fled. According to Chris, he claimed that he picked up his paycheck Friday morning and cashed it before heading south on the freeway. When he got to San Francisco, he was going to stop there and even applied for a job at a Starbucks, but then he changed his mind. Even though Chris did seem to be trying to maintain an honest life, he still took opportunities when they came along. He had noted four names of young men who had recently appeared in obituaries and had written down some of the credit card numbers that he had gotten while working at the Starbucks register. After wandering the city aimlessly for a few days, Chris used the internet service at a Kinko's to book a plane ticket to Cancun, Mexico, using one of the credit card numbers he had stolen. The manager at the San Francisco Starbucks called the Newport Starbucks for a reference, which led the manager at the Newport Starbucks to call the police. It's crazy that Chris spent this many years breaking the law and he almost always used his own name. Except for when he stole the Montana, he never attempted to hide his identity, which maybe worked for a while, but eventually things continued to pile up until he was a murderer on the run. Even the plane ticket was booked in his name, but by the time the police knew to check flights, he was already in Mexico. After that, he could have been anywhere in the country. The manager of the San Francisco Starbucks called Chris and left him a message to come in for an interview at a specific time, but Chris never responded. The FBI were waiting to take him into custody, but it was too late. Chris was already gone. 
Chris was placed on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list, and the TV show America's Most Wanted did a piece about him. A $50,000 reward was offered for information leading to his arrest. When Chris arrived in Cancun, he stayed in a hostel for about a week and tried to make some money, but was unsuccessful. He worked his way south, during which time he met a German photojournalist named Janina, who he told his name was Michael Finkel. Michael Finkel was a real person. He was a reporter who wrote for the New York Times Magazine, and Chris had read his work and fantasized about being a traveling writer. During Chris's short time in Mexico, despite having just murdered his wife and three children just days earlier, he began having a romantic relationship with Janina. For the next couple of weeks, Chris and Janina worked together, putting together an article about Mayan mysticism. Chris was living his dream life as a travel writer, but in the background, his true identity was closing in. After the episode of America's Most Wanted aired on January 12, 2002, people started realizing that they had seen Christian Longo. One of the people who had stayed in the hostel in Cancun called the FBI to report her sighting of Chris, who told her first his name was Brad, and then accidentally told her a different time that his name was Mike. The day after the episode aired, a tour guide in Tulum, a city about 80 miles or 130 kilometers south of Cancun, called the FBI to report seeing Chris the previous evening. The local police were brought in, and the guide showed them the campground where Chris had been staying with Janina and some other travelers. The police spotted Chris and pulled him out of the hut at gunpoint. The FBI agent asked him if he was Christian Michael Longo, and Chris answered yes. Chris did not want to spend any time in a Mexican jail. Everything Chris did was to make Chris's life more comfortable, so he worked out a deal that he would voluntarily return to the United States, where he would be immediately arrested by U.S. authorities. He was obviously escorted the entire time. Back in Oregon, Chris wouldn't admit he killed his wife and children. When time came for him to make a plea, he pleaded guilty to two of the counts of murder and not guilty to the other two counts. Chris began claiming that he had come home from work one day and that Mary Jane had killed the three children. In a fit of rage, he strangled Mary Jane, but afterward he realized that Madison was actually still breathing. Now, at a point of no return, he finished his youngest daughter off and disposed of all their bodies. Chris's decision was one that his lawyers advised him not to take. It was an uphill battle trying to gain sympathy with the jury, and in the end, the defense never got it. Christian Longo was found guilty of first-degree murder for both Zachary and Sadie. He was sentenced to death for the four murders. Though the death penalty is still legal in the state of Oregon, there has been a moratorium on execution since 2011. It's unlikely that Chris will be executed, but he will die in prison. After Chris's arrest, the real Michael Finkel contacted the identity thief and began a sort of friendship with the man as he interviewed him. He went on to write a book about his interaction with Chris titled True Story, Murder, Memoir, Mea Culpa. He, we wrote each other more than a thousand pages of handwritten letters. We spoke on the phone 51 times. I visited with him in jail. It was a um, confounding relationship. Did he confess to you? In the very end of our relationship, after his trial, in a letter, he confessed to me that he murdered all four members of his family. Why did he say he did it? He's blamed his wife for initiating the crime, which is something that I do not believe at all. Uh, I had psychologists read some of his letters, and they diagnosed him as what's called narcissistic personality disorder, an extremely inflated sense of self. He thought he was very important, that his, family, his family's fortunes were diving, and that if, um, 
if he wasn't going to be around to take care of his family, they wouldn't be able to survive without him. How horrified were you hearing him tell essentially his side of the story? I mean, wasn't it hard to even have a relationship with this person? For the f one year between Longo's impersonation and the start of his trial, we didn't discuss the crimes themselves. Longo told me his entire life story. But at the trial in this very small courtroom, when it was apparent that Longo was guilty, and I mean, this is the most horrific crime imaginable, murdering three young children and your wife. Once it was obvious that Longo was guilty, um, the relationship fell apart. And he's on death row now? Deservedly so. He's on death row at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Do you still talk to him? For one year while I was writing the book, we had no contact. In the recent months, there's been very superficial contact between us, um, just a little bit. Years later, Christian Longo would finally admit that it was indeed him that killed all four of his family members. He finally came to accept that he was a narcissist, and in our eyes, a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CERTAIreland.ie. 
Let's have a look at today's lineup. There's a strong Dunn Stores influence from top to bottom, starting with selected boxes of bottled beer and cider like Heineken and Bulmers from just 18 euros 72 cents. Half price Pringles are a very welcome inclusion indeed. 10 or 50 grocery vouchers doing their bit at the till as usual. All that's left to do now is enjoy the football. Dunn Stores, always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. What's better than free money? How you choose to spend it. Open a CQ checking account and get $250 to spend freely. And that's not all this credit union offers. Do your banking, build credit, and invest in your future. Visit secumd.org today.